Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. On Church Music by C.S. Lewis I am a layman and one who can boast no musical education. I cannot even speak from the experience of a lifelong churchgoer. It follows that church music is a subject on which I cannot, even in the lowest degree, appear as a teacher. My place is in the witness box. If it concerns the court to know how the whole matter appears to such as I, I am prepared to give my evidence. I assume from the outset that nothing should be done or sung or said in church which does not aim directly or indirectly either at glorifying God or edifying the people, or both. A good service may, of course, have a cultural value as well, but that is not what it exists for, just as, in an unfamiliar landscape, a church may help me to find the points of the compass, but was not built for that purpose. These two ends, of edifying and glorifying, seem to me to be related as follows. Whenever we edify we glorify. But when we glorify, we do not always edify. The edification of the people is an act of charity and obedience and therefore in itself a glorification of God. But it is possible for a man to glorify God in modes that do not edify his neighbor. This fact confronted the church at an early stage in her career in the phenomenon called speaking with tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, St. Paul points out that the man who is inspired to speak in an unknown tongue may do very well, as far as he himself is concerned, but will not profit the congregation unless his utterance can be translated. Thus glorifying and edifying may come to be opposed. Now, at first sight, to speak with unknown tongues and to sing anthems which are beyond the musical capacity of the people would seem to be very much the same kind of thing. It looks as if we ought to extend to the one the embargo which St. Paul places on the other. And this would lead to the forbidding conclusion that no church music is legitimate except that which suits the existing taste of the people. In reality, however, the parallel is not perhaps so close as it seems. In the first place, the mode after which a speech in an unknown tongue could glorify God was not, I suppose, the same as the mode after which learned music is held to do so. It is, to say the least, doubtful whether the speeches in tongues claim to glorify God by their aesthetic quality. I suppose that they glorify God firstly by being miraculous and involuntary, and secondly, by the ecstatic state of mind in which the speaker was. The idea behind church music is very different. It glorifies God by being excellent in its own kind, almost as the birds and flowers and the heavens themselves glorify God. In the composition and highly trained execution of sacred music, we offer our natural gifts at their highest to God, as we do also in ecclesiastical architecture, investments, in glass and gold and silver, in well-kept parish accounts, or the careful organization of a social. And in the second place, the incapacity of the people to understand a foreign language and their incapacity to understand good music are not really the same. 
The first applies absolutely and equally, except for a lucky accident, to all the members of the congregation. The second is not equally present or equally incurable, perhaps in any two individuals. And finally, the alternative to speech in an unknown tongue was speech in a known tongue. But in most discussions about church music, the alternative to learned music is popular music, giving the people what they like, and allowing them to sing or shout their old favorites. It is here that the distinction between our problem and St. Paul's seems to me to be the sharpest. That words in a known tongue might edify was obvious. Is it equally obvious that the people are edified by being allowed to shout their favorite hymns? I am well aware that the people like it. They equally like shouting Old Lang Syne in the streets on New Year's Eve, or shouting the latest music hall song in a tap room. To make a communal, familiar noise is certainly a pleasure to human beings. And I would not be thought to despise this pleasure. It is good for the lungs. It promotes good fellowship. It is humble and unaffected. It is in every way a wholesome, innocent thing. As wholesome and innocent as a pint of beer, a game of darts, or a dip in the sea. But is it, any more than these, a means of edification? No doubt it can be done. All these things can be done. Eating can be done to the glory of God. We have an apostle's word for it. The perfected Christian can turn all his humblest, most secular, most economic actions in that direction. But if this is accepted as an argument for popular hymns, it will also be an argument for a good many other things. What we want to know is whether untrained communal singing is, in itself, any more edifying than other popular pleasures. And of this I, for one, am still wholly unconvinced. I have often heard this noise. I have sometimes contributed to it. I do not yet seem to have found any evidence that the physical and emotional exhilaration which it produces is necessarily, or often, of any religious relevance. What I, like many other laymen, chiefly desire in church are fewer, better, and shorter hymns, especially fewer. The case for abolishing all church music whatever thus seems to me far stronger than the case for abolishing the difficult work of the trained choir and retaining the lusty roar of the congregation. Whatever doubts I feel about the spiritual value of the first, I feel at least equally about the spiritual value of the second. The first and most solid conclusion which, for me, emerges is that both musical parties, the highbrows and the low, assume far too easily the spiritual value of the music they want. Neither the greatest excellence of a trained performance from the choir, nor the hardiest and most enthusiastic bellowing from the pews, must be taken to signify that any specifically religious activity is going on. It may be so, or it may not. Yet the main sense of Christendom, reformed and unreformed, would be against us if we tried to banish music from the church, it remains to suggest, very tentatively, the ways in which it can really be pleasing to God or help to save the souls of men. There are two musical situations on which I think we can be confident that a blessing rests. One is where a priest or an organist, himself a man of trained and delicate taste, humbly and charitably sacrifices his own aesthetically right desires and gives the people humbler and coarser fare than he would wish, in a belief, 
even as it may be, the erroneous belief, that he can thus bring them to God. The other is where the stupid and unmusical layman, humbly and patiently, and above all silently, listens to music which he cannot, or cannot fully, appreciate, in the belief that it somehow glorifies God, and that if it does not edify him, this must be his own defect. Neither such a highbrow nor such a lowbrow can be far out of the way. To both, church music will have been a means of grace, not the music they have liked, but the music they have disliked. They have both offered, sacrificed their taste in the fullest sense. But where the opposite situation arises, where the musician is filled with the pride of skill or the virus of emulation and looks with contempt on the unappreciative congregation, or where the unmusical, complacently entrenched in their own ignorance and conservatism, look with the restless and resentful hostility of an inferiority complex on all who would try to improve their taste, there we may be sure all that both offer is unblessed and the spirit that moves them is not the Holy Ghost. These highly general reflections will not, I fear, be of much practical use to any priest or organist in devising a working compromise for a particular church. The most they can hope to do is to suggest that the problem is never a merely musical one. Where both the choir and the congregation are spiritually on the right road, no insurmountable difficulties will occur. Discrepancies of taste and capacity will, indeed, provide matter for mutual charity and humility. For us, the musically illiterate mass, the right way is not hard to discern. And as long as we stick to it, the fact that we are capable only of a confused rhythmical noise will not do very much harm. If, when we make it, we really intend the glory of God. For if that is our intention... It follows of necessity that we shall be as ready to glorify him by silence, when required, as by shouts. We shall also be aware that the power of shouting stands very low in the hierarchy of natural gifts, and that it would be better to learn to sing if we could. If anyone tries to teach us, we will try to learn. If we cannot learn, and if this is desired, we will shut up. And we will also try to listen intelligently. A congregation in this state will not complain if a good deal of the music they hear in church is above their heads. It is not the mere ignorance of the unmusical that really resists improvements. It is jealousy, arrogance, suspicion, and the wholly detestable species of conservatism which those vices engender. How far it may be politic, part of the wisdom of the serpent, to make concessions to the old guard in a congregation... I would not like to determine. But I do not think it can be the business of the church greatly to cooperate with the modern state in appeasing inferiority complexes and encouraging the natural man's instinctive hatred of excellence. Democracy is all very well as a political device. It must not intrude into the spiritual or even the aesthetic world. The right way for the musicians is perhaps harder. And I, at any rate, can speak of it with much less confidence. But it seems to me that we must define rather carefully the way, or ways, in which music can glorify God. There is, as I hinted above, a sense in which all natural agents, even inanimate ones, 
glorify God continually by revealing the powers he has given them. And in that sense, we, as natural agents, do the same. On that level, our wicked actions, insofar as they exhibit our skill and strength, may be said to glorify God, as well as our good actions. An excellently performed piece of music, as a natural operation which reveals in a very high degree the peculiar powers given to man, will thus always glorify God, whatever the intention of the performers may be. But that is a kind of glorifying which we share with the dragons and great deeps, with the frosts and snows. What is looked for in us, as men, is another kind of glorifying which depends on intention. How easy or how hard it may be for a whole choir to preserve that intention through all the discussions and decisions, all the corrections and disappointments, all the temptations to pride, rivalry, and ambition which precede the performance of a great work, I, naturally, do not know. But it is on the intention that all depends. When it succeeds, I think the performers are the most enviable of men, privileged while mortals to honor God like angels, and, for a few golden moments, to see spirit and flesh, delight and labor, skill and worship, the natural and the supernatural, all fused into that unity they would have had before the fall. But I must insist that no degree of excellence in the music, simply as music, can assure us that this paradisal state has been achieved. The excellence proves keenness. But men can be keen for natural, or even wicked, motives. The absence of keenness would prove that they lack the right spirit. Its presence does not prove that they have it. We must beware of the naive idea that our music can please God as it would please a cultivated human hearer. That is like thinking under the old law that he really needed the bloods of bulls and goats. To which an answer came, Mine are the cattle upon a thousand hills, and, if I am hungry, I will not tell thee. If God, in that sense, wanted music, he would not tell us. For all our offerings, whether of music or martyrdom, are like the intrinsically worthless present of a child which a father values indeed, but values only for the intention. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow, and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>